Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. This is a podcast primarily focusing on the pro wrestling events from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Sometimes we go outside of those parameters, but not today, right in the middle of them. We are finally going to do WWF Spring of 1983 this week and next week. So fasten your seatbelts. Uh, I want to say this, too. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps, indeed, we'll give you a Wicked Good and Raw Bone podcast. I want to invite you to join us on our Facebook group. If you haven't already, it's cool stuff. We talk about the show. We talk about wrestling in general, results, uh, things that Dutch Mantel was wrong about, etc. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. Before I get rolling, I want to make a public service announcement. There has been some concern expressed over last week's show. And I'll read exactly what this gentleman said. I, I don't want to reveal his name and, and, and he's a very modest person. I don't want to embarrass him. John and Brad do a good job, but I struggle. I do struggle some with their quote, theories and opinions, unquote, that many may take as quote, facts, unquote. Hope not. God, please don't take our theories and opinion on facts. I, I'm sure many of you need to know that somehow. But, I mean, this gentleman's concerned. I, I want to alleviate his concerns by making that public service announcement. With that, I want to bring on our occasional, sometimes maybe co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing well, and uh, it's great to be back. And uh, um, I just wanted to say about the Facebook group, we've had lots of interesting conversations on there. We talked about uh, when did Greg Gagne jump the shark? Uh, I mentioned Zugus Rift. And we had some other uh, really scintillating debate, like uh, what would have happened if Randy Savage had went to NWA or Jim Crockett instead of going to WWF in 85. So lots of interesting discussion on that site. Yeah, the, the thing we were talking about, we mentioned it last week about Dutch Mantel, and I love Dutch Mantel. If, if I were a wrestling god, if I were in charge of everything, Dutch would have had a way bigger career. He, he absolutely should have had a bigger role uh, when he was in World Championship Wrestling slash Crockett. You know, he's way better than being just one of the Kansas Jayhawks. But he basically said that, you know, one of the biggest things in wrestling that, that, that were changed in wrestling in the 80s was that Ted Turner took the NWA, bought the NWA November 1988, and turned it into a national company. It was already a national <laughs> company. It definitely they was. Were, they were promoting east to Boston and Miami, west to Los Angeles. They had a national pay-per-view. They were on uh, national cable TV. I mean, look, everyone makes a mistake. I'm just saying, you know, that's just one thing Dutch said that was incorrect. I'm not coming down on Dutch. It was just weird, though, that people, because Dutch said it, it's like, well, I've got to change the definition of certain words to, to make it so that Dutch was not incorrect. Like, you know, well, what does national really mean? It's like, ah, come on. 
Well, it's a shame too, because the, the, the period that he's talking about or where the error is made was really the peak period for both companies. I mean, you had peak WWF in uh, 86, 87 and peak JCP in that same period. And by the time Turner officially bought the promotion, WCW was in worse shape or, or JCP was in really rough shape. And WWF was creatively kind of sinking a bit as well so yeah he did make a bit of a faux pas there yeah and again you know if you want to hit me in my stupid face all you gotta do is say well dutch was out making history while you were out there watching him do it bam you got me (laughs) there you go all right on to the world wrestling federation uh from spring of 1983 uh jim valley i'm dedicating this one to you this is for review purposes only we're going to start with an interview with andre the giant as the guest on buddy rogers corner welcome ladies and gentlemen my guest this week is perhaps the greatest single sports attraction in the world today None other than Andre the Giant. Hi, Andre. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a few things that I'd like to bring out in regards to Andre, and that is some of the things have happened to this man year in and year out. Number one, this man draws without a doubt more people than any single attraction in the world today. For instance, we'll say in a year, five million people. Another thing, Andre, I thought I had a good record in my day of wrestling, but I've lost a few matches. But here's a man has never lost a match. Andre, I'd also like to say that I've heard a lot of people say that they drew big houses in wrestling. Here's a man who's drawn 120,000 people to one match in Baghdad. Andre, there must be something else you can tell us. Uh, I was to say one thing. Uh, lots of people want to see the giant, and I want to show myself after. So that's why I like to make everybody happy, and that's why I'm traveling all over the world. I want to make everybody have the chance to see a giant, and I want to say hello to everybody. Well, Andre, let me say, you do one tremendous job. And I know the people love you, no matter where you go. And I do know they're all with you. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll go back to Ringside Wrestling. Thank you. Five million people in a year. That's pretty impressive. He, uh, Buddy Rogers, always likes to make these giant proclamations, kind of like, uh, well, folks, we're about to look into Al Capone's vault. And then he, <laughs> and by the time he reveals what he wants to say, it's like, that was it. Yeah, I guess I guess five million people a year watched Andre the Giant. If you include people who watched on TV, if I Steve, I never in 1983, I never appreciated the fact that they were building up that winning streak. Andre the Giant is undefeated, and every time they said that, every time they they you know referenced that, made a big deal about it, they were putting money in the bank. They were depositing money in the bank, and and someday they were going to cash out. I, I just never realized that when I was younger, like before they actually did it. 
Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense now. And, it, and it's funny to listen to these old clips where, uh, you know, they introduce Andre and immediately just hearing his name, the, the, the crowd really pops. They really go crazy for him. And it's funny because you and I were, were living through it. We were watching this show on a weekly basis, going to house cards. And, and both you and I were really tired of him by that point. So we, we were definitely in the minority of that group. Well, you know what, Steve? I think it's because... The average wrestling fan, at least back in the day, was a wrestling fan for about three years. And by and after three years, you've seen it all, and you move on to something else. And we didn't fit into that category, but you know, you and I had been watching for more than three years. And then you, with Andre, it was the same thing every week, you know, or and not every week, every time you saw him, it was the same match. And yeah, I guess after a while, by this point, I was like, this whole thing's getting old. Yeah, for uh, preparation for this show, I watched a few house cards uh, from this time period, and uh, it did did stand out to me just how big John Studd was. You know, we kind of forget, you know, it's been a long time since we really seen him wrestle. And, uh, you know, John Studd was limited, and he couldn't do lots of moves, but just seeing him come in the ring and and be about the same size as Andre, it did make for for a fascinating watch. I mean, they may not have done a lot in the ring, but I was captivated. I just kind of kind of kept wondering what's going to happen, and uh, it did it did catch my uh, attention and made me want to watch it. I mean, I went to see Andre the Giant versus Big John Studd at the Boston Garden, and I, as we record, I'm going to have more to say about that. But anyway, uh, let's talk about Boston Garden. Uh, March 26, 1983, uh, drew 16,147 people. I specifically remember this show being either sold out or close to it. I mean, the place was packed. Main event was Bob Backlund defeating Don Morocco in a Texas death match. Uh, oh, here it is, Andre the Giant defeats Big John Stud via countout. Steve, I specifically remember not being like turned off at all by Andre versus Stud. I was fine with it. And I do remember being disappointed by the Bob Backlund Don Morocco match. It was, uh, you know, imagine you think Texas Deathmatch, these guys are going to go nuts beating the crap out of each other. Bunch of headlocks. <laughs> how, how did, if you can remember, uh, what kind of reaction did Backlund get when he came out and after the match? I do remember Bob was still getting a mostly positive reaction at this point. And, you know, not to belabor this, I mean, I feel like I beat up on Bob Backlund too much. I, I don't mean to. I, I, you know, if we're talking about the WWF and he's the champion, you've got to mention his name. And you can't ignore the fact that the guy, I mean, we're talking spring 83 here. He is in a serious decline both in and out of the ring. Well, the matches that I saw just kind of preparing for this particular show, I was really taken back by how over he was with the audience. Uh, the uh, One of the garden matches with Morocco, uh, uh, one of his matches with Slaughter, which we'll get into more later, uh, he was still getting a very sound reaction, um, you know, before the match and after the match. And, and that, that did take me back a little bit. I was surprised by that. Well, you know what, Backlund... New York never turned on Bob Backlund. I watched a match, uh, Greg Valentine versus Bob Backlund from, I think it was April 1984, and Bob was still getting a tremendous response, and this is three three months after Hogan won the title. I mean, Philly, I can hear the boos. Boston, I was there for the boos, but New York, they, they, they just continued to love the guy. Yeah, I, I happened to see a, a match uh, just yesterday. It was one of the Spectrum matches with uh, Backlund against Iron Mike Sharp, and uh, you know, the match was okay. There was nothing really special about it and and i never at any point 
thought that Iron Mike Sharp had a chance of winning the match. But uh, Backlund got kind of a bland reaction. Uh, it, it, no, I didn't really hear any boos, but uh, definitely the, the reaction to the champion was much less than what you were expecting. But um, for the, like you said, Madison Square Garden was quite different. He was getting huge ovations there. So it's kind of interesting how uh, the reactions were different in different buildings. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, like I said, I don't know if New York was the outlier or Boston slash Philly was was the outlier. I I can't say I never experienced a, an '80s WWE event in Pittsburgh, Baltimore, etc. Two other things jump out at me at this show, and I do remember this. Number one, Chief J Strongbow defeats Captain Lou Albano in five fifteen. You may not have been at the Garden, but you've seen this match. It's the same Captain Lou Albano match that they always do. I'm not sure why they gave him to Strongbow at this at this point, but I remember the whole thing being over. And another match that jumped out at me as being not good. Once again, I didn't know what work rate was. Rocky Johnson defeats Superstar Billy Graham. You know, to me, we're looking at a guy who was WWF champion not that long ago against Rocky Johnson, who I considered a top star and someone who, you know, could have conceivably won the NWA title and and the match just stunk. I recently uh, watched a shoot interview with Rocky Johnson, really a good one, talking about his entire career. And he did, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, and he did talk briefly about Billy Graham and said that uh, when they were both kind of coming up together uh, on the West Coast, I believe for Roy Shires in Northern California, they had really gotten along well, had a nice relationship, and uh, and they enjoyed working with each other in matches. But he said that after Billy had lost the title or after he had become champion, he felt like he was a changed man and the relationship was never quite the same again. So it's kind of interesting uh, how Billy, <laughs> Billy really did change like uh, from champion, champion to non-champion and, and not in a good way. Billy, I'll tell you something. Billy needed to sit down and talk to someone who was a professional at working these things out because I, there's no question that Graham, you know, believes all the stuff he was saying and, you know, I mean, you got to take the bad with the good. My God, he had this great run with the WWF Championship, and I, I wish while he was alive, he he, you know, embraced that more than focusing on. Oh my God, I lost the title. Yeah, yeah, because he did have a lot to celebrate, and uh, and and I, I know, at least on a couple of his interviews, Billy did say that. Uh, he he felt that the fans or maybe even Vince, the uh, elder Vince, gave him kind of a, a break from all for uh, during the the kung fu run for all the success he had had before. I yeah. think he really he really admitted and understood that the kung fu run was really abominable. So. Yeah, and it wasn't just the WWF. He took that junk to Florida with him. My goodness, and he, and Georgia. Okay, so now. March 30th, we have a TV taping. A couple of things go on. Number one, the return of Sergeant Slaughter. And to me, it felt like Slaughter had kind of just left. He 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 was back less than two years after he left. But now, once again, this is just speculation on my part, kids. Don't take this as a fact. Vince McMahon had, did not mention this to me all the times you know, he and I sat down for lunch. <laughs> But I really believe Vince McMahon Jr., he had just taken over the company recently. That's a fact. And he wanted the strongest challengers he could get for Bob Backlund. He wanted to come out of the gate, you know, the right way. And that's why I think Sergeant Slaughter was brought back so quickly. 
Oh yeah, it, it, it's amazing uh, the, the the role that he would end up playing. I mean, initially he's going to be a huge challenger to Backlund, but as the year ends, he's going to you know end up doing the the heel turn and have a major feud with the Iron Sheik the following year. And uh, and really um, because Hogan wasn't so supremely over in '84, you could arguably say he was even more over than Hogan was in '84. I I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say Slaughter was more over than Hogan, but I think at least the beginning of the first half, certainly of 1984, he was clearly number two, and whoever was number three was was multiple steps behind. Right, right. So yeah, uh, you know, and one other thing I wonder about Steve, I don't have the answer again. I wonder if they knew coming in that Sergeant Slaughter would would be turned babyface before everything was over, because you look back. And I didn't. I wasn't saying this March thirtieth, nineteen eighty three. But you look back, and it, it's such a logical path. Oh, it, it is, and, uh, and and you know, and again, we we who knew that this was going to happen? But you know, at the end of the year in October, I guess it was, is was when Ernie Roth died, and it seemed like his passing and the grand the Grand Wizard passing away was a way to uh, kind of pay pay homage to Sergeant Slaughter, his number one uh, protege, and uh, kind of feel almost empathy for him for losing his manager. And that was, it felt like that was the beginning of his baby face turn just when he saluted uh, Grand Wizard uh, on his farewell. So that, you know what? I, I remember that, that that's an excellent call on your part. The other thing that happened on March 30th, and believe it or not, this is something we were all waiting for. We all wanted to see this. Big John Studd is wrestling Pete Sanchez, and Andre the Giant leaves the broadcast booth, enters the ring, and attempts to attack Studd after Studd repeatedly pulls Sanchez off the mat instead of making a cover. The feud we've wanted, the the guy who is big enough to legitimately challenge Andre, that feud is on. So speaking of this feud, here is Big John Studd making an appearance on Buddy Rogers Corner with Fred Blassie. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This week, my guest is none other than the giant Big John Studd and his manager, Fred Blassie. I will admit that you have really made a name for yourself in the World Wrestling Federation. I will admit that your ability in wrestling is tremendous. But there's one thing I can't get through my mind is that you believe in your heart and your mind that there isn't another man named Andre the Giant who I believe can beat you. I got a message for you, Rogers. Everywhere I go in the United States, I talk to every promoter and I give them a contract and I say, I want Andre's name on it. I want him to prove to me and prove to the world that he's the giant and not John Studd. You talk about size, Rogers. Take a look at this hand. Talk about size. Take a look at this neck. Talk about size. Take a look at this body right here. That will me all. Your size is one thing, but I think Andre overwhelms you physically and mentally. He's a big, fat man. He's a man that was given an opportunity to try to slam me for $10,000, and he didn't do it, Rogers. Well, that remains to be seen. I still say he can beat you, and with that, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. Thank you. 
There was someone in the crowd who had a, 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 a sign that was so good I could swear this, this person was planted. It said, goodbye, $10,000, and then there was a, a large picture of Andre the Giant. That, that was good stuff. It, 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 well, the feud that they had just begun between these guys, uh, it, it would really last until, um, you know, well after the first WrestleMania. I mean, they had the body slam challenge at the first WrestleMania. And, of course, later on, uh, Bundy got involved and crushed Andre's sternum. And But, I mean, this is all, uh, all the seeds are being planted right here in 83 uh, for what would be a feud that would seemingly last forever. I mean, I I couldn't believe it. Like in '86, that feud was still going on until Andre got quote unquote suspended, and by that point, I think uh, Big John Studd had left the territory. That's right. Yeah, it was a Stud and uh, Bundy had kind of <laughs> went off for a little while, and uh, Stud went did a, a movie or two, and uh, wouldn't come back until his babyface run in '88 uh, or '89. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, for someone in, you know, who had someone in Chicago, let's say, who hadn't got WWF wrestling in 1983, you know, wow, Andre the Giant versus Big John Studd at the end of 1984. That sounds good to Steve and I and everyone else who lived through it in the the Northeast. We're like, they're still doing this. Come on. Yeah, it, (laughs) it did. It did feel like it just went on forever and ever. And but watching these old clips, though, uh, you know, it's it's been so long. uh, it's it's amazing how large John Studd was, and even though he was fairly immobile, uh, he he reminds me a, a lot like Brock Lesnar. I mean, Brock Lesnar is a lot more explosive and can do a lot more in the ring, but they both have that kind of mountain man look and uh, real marketable look, and uh, you can see why they uh, pushed him as a heel for a long, long time. Definitely not a, a re- memorable challenger for Backlund because they just didn't match up that well, but. Uh, uh, among the super heavyweights, he was one of Andre's top opponents for sure. I would say, you know what, the more I'm thinking about this, uh, leaving out Japan, leaving out Mexico, I mean, I, I can't think of a more memorable opponent for Andre the Giant than John Studd. I mean, Ernie Ladd comes in second, and I, to me at least, and he's a distant second. Yeah, yeah. When when, I'm, when we first got into wrestling in '76, I mean that was a major uh, uh, a matchup for Andre. They re- wrestled in most of the major markets together, or you know, Ernie Ladd against Andre. But this this angle or this feud, uh, at least they had uh, you know the body slam challenge was a part of it, and uh, and of course when they cut his hair with Patera uh, in '84, that really uh, added a lot more heat to it. It definitely did. And I remember, you know, coming into the first WrestleMania saying, you know, being like, okay, I saw these guys wrestle two years ago and they're still going at it. Time goes by a lot more slowly when you're young. Three years, uh, two years is a long time. But anyway, I'll tell you what, I have a lot to say about the next gentleman we're about to hear from. Here's Iron Mike Sharp with Captain Lou Albano on Buddy Rogers Corner. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest this week is a man that I believe has cut quite a path through the World Wrestling Federation. There's no doubt that this man has really got it all together. There's no doubt in my mind that he really is a tremendous wrestler. But there's one thing I would like to have answered. Why do you use that thing on your arm? To me, that's far from wrestling. I said, never mind about the thing on my arm. How about the tremendous victories I've had night after night after night? Anybody they put me in the ring with, I demolished them. Not only come out with my hand raised, 
They've been carried off to the hospital. Let me tell you this, Buddy Rogers. The man had a, a former injury. It has healed and calcified. That hand is stronger than ever. He does not need the protective guard, but merely for protection, we chose to wear it. Now, why don't you get Jimmy Snooker to take the knee pads off? If you I'm not. Pads, I'm not questioning Jimmy Snooker. I'm questioning Mike Sharp. Well, why is. that arm? Listen, I'm getting a little sick and tired of people like you and all these fans questioning why I have this on my arm. I don't have to talk about it. I have permission to wear this, and that's all there's to it. All that matters is I'm a winner. I win every time I get in that ring, and anybody that steps in front of me is going to be a loser. Listen, as far as I'm concerned, I know you're trying to evade the subject, but all well and good. Well, why don't you take a walk? Ladies and gentlemen, we'll go back to ringside restaurant. Why don't you take a walk? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty. You know what? The day is coming where I'm going to be that really old guy saying things like that, so I, I shouldn't laugh too hard. Iron Mike Sharp. Now, by this point, we were no longer getting uh, Channel Nine, the wrestling from New York, so I had no idea what was going on at Madison Square Garden. I never had any idea what was going on in, in Philly or, or Pittsburgh or wherever else. But Iron Mike Sharp was over enough with me to the point where I was wondering why he didn't get a title match in Boston. He was over enough with me. Now, I'm not saying he should have had a, a three-match series like a Morocco or a Slaughter, but, I mean, I, literally, as as Vince McMahon would say, Iron Mike Sharp, that title match in Boston was conspicuous by its absence. Well, well, when they did have their match in the spectrum with, with Sharp against Backlund, uh, conspicuous by his absence was Lou Albano. And that, that was another sign that, like, you know, if this guy's really going to beat Backlund, how come his manager isn't there? And I, I know sometimes at the spectrum, not all the managers would show up all the time. but In Boston, they never showed up. <laughs> there you go. They, they never showed up. That was one of the biggest surprises to me when I first started going is like, where's Albano? Where's Blasting? <laughs> they never showed up until the Hogan era. Right. That's right. You know, I, and my Sharp uh, was, was a decent guy in the ring, but, but, you know, is the, as we get closer to the national expansion, you're seeing all these heavy hitters come in, like Valentine comes back and uh, Slaughter's coming back. And, you know, one major, major star after another is coming in. I mean, Mike Sharp, uh, you know, had a you know, nice size body, uh, you know, very athletic looking. He had good stamina in the ring, but he, he just missed some of those key elements that would make him a serious contender. I mean, you could tell on interviews he really wasn't that good. And, and I, I, I just think the promotion kind of knew where, where Mike's place was going to be. Like, give him kind of a push, but, but don't put everything behind him because it's not going to be a big box office thing. No, I mean, to me, it's the kind of match that if you have Iron Mike Sharp against Bob Backlund on top, you, know, you better have something like, say, Andre the Giant versus Big John Studd is the next match down. Yeah, yeah. In in, in retrospect, uh, looking back at Mike Sharp is uh, kind of getting a major push here compared to the way he would end up being the rest of his WWF run where he was back really in prelims. He reminds me a lot of, of Mighty Joe Thunder. I mean, two guys that were, were, were at first. Well, two guys that were at first, man by Lou Albano, uh, you know, get, get an initial push with Albano, but then kind of just fall off the face of the earth. And both, you know, large guys, both, you know, not really uh, have a major fish, finisher, but uh, 
uh, I, do, I do see some similarities there. Well, I mean, one big difference is they had, uh, what's his name, uh, Mighty Joe Thunder in for one taping, and they sent him home. And I've, I've said this on the podcast before. I mean, you know, I didn't know anything about you know, who could work, who could not work. And I would, you know, uh, Mighty Joe Thunder comes on like, this guy is a complete stumble bum. What's <laughs> with this? Whereas Iron Mike Sharp, you know, his role just got smaller and smaller until he they finally let him go in like 87 or 88. I, I did hear at one point, you know, and I think it's been kind of one of those questions that always pops up is like, whatever happened to the Iron Mike Sharp run with the t- against the champion or whatever. And from what I've heard, he may have missed some dates or been late for some dates. And, ah. and, and I'm sorry, I'm starting to think that maybe his uh, proclivities with OCD may have held him up one way or another. You know, we've heard the famous stories about him being locked in the buildings and, yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe that slowed him down to the point where he missed a major show. You know what? That That's a really good point. I mean, you see this guy wrestling in Georgia, wrestling in Mid-South, and you're like, okay, I can put him up against Backland. And then you meet him, and you're like, you know what? I don't want to put too many eggs in this guy's basket, so let's you know, not have him have the big Madison Square Garden match. By the way, before anyone corrects me, I do know that Iron Mike Sharp was wrestling for Georgia Championship Wrestling briefly in 1984 before returning to the WWF. Now... <clears throat> Wanted to mention a couple of smaller shows the WWF had. April 3rd, 1983 in Struthers, Ohio. So Vince is already expanding out west as far as like, you know, being able to make the show via car. And, you know, Ohio is kind of established as Georgia Championship Wrestling's territory. And then April 10th, 1983, they have a show in Fairfax, Virginia. Now, Fairfax is part of Metro Washington, D.C., which had always been the, you know, the property kind of of the World Wrestling Federation. But it feels like this is as far as I can see, this is their first show ever in the state of Virginia, which always, you know, which belonged to Crockett. So you can kind of and I don't mean to overemphasize this, but you can really see. In hindsight, the wrestling war is going to start, and it's going to start soon. I mean, I feel like going into Virginia, like Vince really crossed the line. And I know um, Jim Cornette has talked about on his show about uh, the benefit of of, of promoters and territories going into this uh, like virgin land or land that has been untouched by wrestling cards for uh, you know maybe a few months or a few years. I don't know if Georgia was promoting these cities that may have been on their their map, but uh, it was easy for WWF to bring their roster of talent to these areas that maybe hadn't had shows since the Sheik days, uh, and it was easy to have Backlund or Andre headline a show like this and just. Let them see some wrestling, and and as we would get into the Hogan era, you'd have a lot more uh, stars to come to those markets and, and build bigger shows. Sure. Now, I should make it clear that they the WWF was not invading areas that World Championship Wrestling had had been established in yet. Okay, mm-hmm. they, you know, WCW had not run Struthers, Ohio, as far as I can see, but you can tell the the sides are getting closer and closer to okay, where is this line drawn between you promote here and I promote there? 
Yeah, yeah. The, the younger Vince McMahon uh, saw lots of opportunities in these markets where there hadn't been wrestling. And I know in just probably a few seconds, we'll talk about Los Angeles because that was, you know, obviously the second biggest market in the country. And they had been dry of wrestling for quite some time. That, that's always, you know, when I was younger, I always thought that was crazy that Los Angeles had no major league wrestling in the early 80s after LaBelle died. And LaBelle was, I want to say, completely gone by 1981. But that promotion, I mean, was running on dust, you know, from like 1977, 1978 on. You know, same thing with San Diego, a giant market with no major league professional wrestling. Phoenix, the same thing. I mean, it, it, I always thought that was kind of crazy. Well, the national expansion you know, that we saw in wrestling in, in 83, 84, 85, and beyond, I mean, it really had to happen because you had so many dead areas like Detroit and California and, um, and just markets, like you say, Phoenix. They're really, other than small shows, there hadn't been big promotions in Phoenix or Arizona. Uh, there were so many you know, untapped markets that these, these companies really wanted to take advantage of and make some money. And I am aware that there were attempts to get something going in Los Angeles, to get something going in Phoenix, and it was just never successful. And I know, you know, hey, I mean, Jim Cornette said it himself. If you want to run a, a town or a city, you have to be on television for at least six months beforehand, preferably a year. And I've always believed in that. You don't just watch something, you know, have something on for a month and expect 5,000 people to show up for an event. Yeah, and, and as far as WWF going to the West Coast, uh, I mean, they had the benefit of, I think, having, uh, I think they had WR out there or they had some other uh, avenues. I mean, USA was still in their early, early uh, phases, but they, 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 I'm sure they had a way of getting the WWF on in those markets. And I know, especially in the Bay Area, I know uh, Vince paid top dollar to put his show on and, and basically Vern's show got kicked off. I mean, it, this isn't uh, just an episode of a podcast. This is a, a podcast itself that, you know, the, when cable TV first became a thing and it's, you know, not everyone had it in the early 80s, but enough people had it where if the show was on TV, you know, Channel 9 being on in Los Angeles or even in Honolulu, it creates a demand for that product, meaning that the wrestling war was inevitable. It was just Vince McMahon who had, who was a step ahead of, of everyone else. I mean, that that's the way it was. And even uh, Brian Last had Mike Mittman on the old 605 show, and he talked about uh, you know, people like in other countries, like in Africa, were watching the uh, uh, Channel 9 show. So, I mean, it, it, the, the, the way that that show carried through, you know, countries and continents. I mean, it really had a, it made a presence for the WWF worldwide. It, it definitely did. All right, I'll tell you what. For review purposes only, let's hear Jimmy Snuka on Buddy Rogers Corner. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My guest this week is none other than your boy and my boy, Superfly Snuka. Ladies and gentlemen, it's been quite a while that Jimmy and I have been out here, but. We sat in the dressing room just a little bit ago and Jimmy was sort of pouring his heart out to me, telling me just how good things are going for him at present. And he feels like he'd like to talk to you just how he really feels. You know, buddy, there's only one thing I like to mention to these people, that 
I just want to tell you and tell these wonderful people that I love so much out there. And I want to thank you people so much for writing in. And I just cannot say anything better than that. I love you people very much for all the help that you've been supporting myself and you, buddy. I just want to tell you that I want to thank you for helping me, bringing me back mentally and bringing me back physically back into this wrestling business. And there's only one thing I want to mention to you is that as long as I got you and I got those wonderful people out there that gives us a lot of the support that we love, I know we can definitely take us all the way to the top, brother. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to say one thing. I know that titles are won and lost in the ring. But let me tell you, when it comes to a guy like Jimmy, I would like to say, champions live on forever. Thank you. Go back to ringside wrestling. Jimmy Snook, a graduate of the Bob Backlund School of How to Do an Interview. That was terrible. I'm not sure who, who was supposed to be impressed by that. <laughs> I, I, I guess I must have liked the interview more than you did, but I just, <laughs> I did, I just kind of felt bad, like, uh, you know, really listening to what, what he was saying and taking it at face value. And if he had really, you know, done what he said in the interview and just, like, appreciated his life and, you know, kind of stayed the course and do the right things and, not get involved in you know, drugs and other things. I mean, uh, there's no, there's no far how he could have gone in the WWF. I mean, yeah, I, I doubt he was going to, you know, overtake Hogan when Hogan got his big spot. But I mean, if Snooker had done the right stuff and stayed clean and, and stayed the superfly that the people knew and loved, uh, maybe they would have made him kind of, kind of a living legend or something to keep him in the, high elevated position not not at hogan level but maybe like uh you know 1b so to speak well let's look at it this way steve i mean you're making a really good point i'm going to take it another step further what if jimmy snooka had kept it together okay it'd been reliable you know didn't, didn't kill anybody etc what if if you're vince mcmahon and you're like okay I have this guy, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, who I could make WWF champion, and he'll sell out all over the place, and we'll just keep our same formula, you know, challenger of the month, or I can take my chances with this Hulk Hogan guy and see how that goes. You got to remember, he was an un Hogan was an unproven commodity in the Northeast. Snooker was a proven commodity, or would have been if he had kept his head screwed on straight. It, I still think he would have gone with Hogan. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but, you know, it, it's something you would think they'd at least have to think about. Well, that, that's a very good point. And, and uh, I, I think the stars were aligned for Hogan and Vince as far as all the stuff they did. I mean, having the Sheik be right in the position he was in to have Hogan beat him and, and then begin the Hogan reign and then the MTV stuff with Piper. I mean, that all worked out great. But you know, like we were saying, if, if Snooker had done his piece of the puzzle, if he had maintained everything and they kept him at this elite level, they could have had Hogan versus Snook at WrestleMania two, maybe not WrestleMania one, but WrestleMania two, that could have been huge. If he was still in that number, you know, that one, a versus one B position, Hogan against, against Snooker. Uh, you know what? I could see that. And it certainly would have been better than what they actually did at WrestleMania two. <laughs> yeah. We were talking about WOR and we, 
you know, here in Nashua, New Hampshire, our cable system dropped WOR January uh, 1983 and replaced it with the Weather Channel. And I've never forgiven the Weather Channel <laughs> for that. But I, I also have come to uh, learn that WOR got dropped from a bunch of cable systems. I don't know why, what happened, whatever. I mean, I'd certainly rather watch wrestling in the Mets than than the weather constantly. I mean, <laughs> I mean, just tell me what the weather is. It takes two minutes. I don't need a ch- a channel for it, right? <laughs> and that's why you know, like in the like a year ago, if we were doing WWF Spring 1982, I had all kinds of local promos from Madison Square Garden. Now I've just got a bunch of Buddy Rogers corners. Right, right. Well, I, I, you know, I was living in upstate New York, and I had uh, uh, Channel Nine, and, and um, we, we, I guess we would have it for a few more de- decades. I mean, I think we eventually lost Channel Nine. I think up there, but I moved to Florida in the late '90s, so I'm not sure what happened after that. Okay, I know certainly by then it was no longer considered a superstation. And then we have, uh, let's talk about the Boston Garden show I attended April 16th, 1983. I don't remember much about it, but it looks like a very nondescript show. The main event is Bob Backlund pinning Big John Studd in 22 minutes and 23 seconds. I'll be honest, I don't remember anything about the match, whether it was good, whether it was bad. Chief J. Strongbow pinned Superstar Billy Graham in 414, which I absolutely took as, you know, Superstar Billy Graham is either gone or he's going to be gone soon. But Strongbow getting a nice little push in Boston. He gets the Albano match, and then he gets the Superstar Billy Graham match. And then we have Rocky Johnson defeats Don Morocco by countout in 1245. I think that was the match I was probably looking forward to the most because I saw... Uh, certainly saw Morocco as one of the biggest stars in wrestling. And I, I saw Rocky Johnson in the same light. Yeah. And I, I seen some of their matches recently, uh, I guess a couple of the ones from the garden, uh, a Madison square garden, uh, even though I, I think Rocky Johnson deserved a, even a bigger push than what he really got from the WWF, their matches together were, were definitely not as good as I was hoping for. Um, I think that the angle that led up to it was really exciting. And then what they did on TV was exciting with each other and they had good interviews, but Morocco just seemed slowed down, seemed lethargic and Rocky Johnson. I don't know. Maybe it was just uh, working before these big audiences. I don't know what it was, but he just seemed off of his game too. I mean, Rocky, you know, by the, by this point, Rocky Johnson was not a good worker at all. I, I came to realize that. And you're right. You know, there, there really is a big difference between 1981 Don Morocco and 1983 Don Morocco. I mean, unmistakably, he had put on some weight. I mean, you could just, you didn't even have to go, look, go back and look. Like, you could tell, like, at the time, like, okay, this guy's eating some donuts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he had, he had his moments. I mean, he had some great matches. Uh, oh, definitely. We, I mean, like you said, there were some stinkers with Backlund. There were some really good ones with Backlund. Some of the matches with Mor- with uh, with Snooker were okay. But Morocco, as far as his uh, ring presence and his persona, I mean, he was super over in, in 83. And uh, as we discussed on our uh, our kind of our year-end wrap-up show recently. Uh, he was one of our kind of our MVPs of the year, just not so much oh, for definitely. his wrestling, but for his personality. Sure, and you know that that's what matters in wrestling. You know, I can't emphasize that enough. If people, you know, they they especially in the Northeast in 1983, they didn't go to see like you know an, a, a New Japan style type wrestling they went to see the big personalities like andre the giant like big john stud like don morocco 
Yeah, absolutely. They weren't they weren't looking for a work rate. They were looking for uh, you know a high spot here and there and posing and lots of uh, yes. you know, reaction. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, once again, on a scale of one to ten, I could tell you if a match was a ten. I could tell you if a match was a one. Anything between two and nine, I had no idea. It was all in the same in the same sock drawer. Now. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of a peek into the future, Steve, and I just picked up on this today as I was like, you know, okay, what did I miss? And I did miss something. April 23, 1983, the WWF runs a show in Los Angeles, and they also run a show in Landover, Maryland. Now, they had done this dating back to 79-80 when they could have Bruno Sammartino headlining one city and Bob Backlund headlining another. But when Bruno went away, so did this. And now it's back. They're running two major arenas in one night. Landover got a main event of Andre the Giant against Big John Studd. And Los Angeles got the main event of Bob Backlund over Ivan Koloff. I think this is smart. The WWF used locals in Los Angeles, uh, Black Gordman, Alexis Smirnoff, Billy Anderson, Jerry Monty, etc. This was the show that uh, Billy Anderson uh, defeated Paul Orndorff. <laughs> but they're, they're showing the world we can run two shows in one night. And, you know, hindsight, once again, being 2020, I'm, I'm picking up on that. That's the direction they're head, heading in. Yeah, they were definitely putting their footprint in uh, Los Angeles and the West Coast. Uh, I think it's interesting to see that uh, they use some big name talent that wouldn't normally be on a WWF show in this time frame. Like Adrian Adonis was on the card. He went to a draw with SD Jones, which is kind of a surprise. Mill Maskers wasn't really yet back into the WWF fold, but he was on the West Coast uh, defeating Buddy Rose on a DQ. So they, they did have a little local flavor there. And um, definitely they were bringing some, some big-name talent to an area that really hadn't seen Major League Wrestling since uh, probably uh, 80 or before. Uh, definitely the LaBelle promotion had been really been struggling. Uh, I mean, the, the the last notable thing they ever did was Piper against Chavo, and that was what in seventy seven or seventy eight. So seventy six. It's okay, seventy six. So there's a very lean period in between before this stuff that we're talking about in eighty three and uh, seventy six. You know, let's talk about Adrian Adonis for a minute. Adrian is doing some interesting stuff. He's working for the WWF on the West Coast. He's wrestling, he's doing, uh, the outlaw promotion in St. Louis and he's the Southwest world heavyweight champion, which by that point was, you know, definitely an outlaw promotion move so i i wish adrian were still around so we could ask him about this stuff <laughs> yeah as far as i know i think he was even doing some japan dates in between all this yes and uh, and i know uh um brian last had mentioned on one of the recent jim Cornette shows that uh, uh brian was reading the new uh, book about adrian adonis that's out and i haven't had a chance to find that or see it anywhere but uh uh, hopefully that will give us shed some light on some of the mystery stuff that we don't know about, Adrian. Uh, Got to find that book somewhere. So, all right. And now, once again, for review purposes, uh, Sergeant Slaughter with the Grand Wizard of Wrestling on Buddy Rogers Corner. And gentlemen, my guest this week is the Grand Wizard of Wrestling, Manager of Champions, and also Sergeant Slaughter, the Drill Instructor of the Marines. Sergeant Slaughter, I would like to bring one thing to your attention. 
I know you believe in staying in shape and being in great shape, but did you ever realize what tremendous conditioning there is in the top wrestlers of wrestling today? For instance, there is one Bob Backlund that has performed the Harvard stress test that I believe is absolutely superb. You know, Mr. Rogers, I used to respect you because you're a two-time world champion. And the last time I saw you, the last time I saw you throwing some drunken bum out of some casino down in Atlantic City. Well, I'm saying you right now to your face that you're a blind and you're a liar because you were out here a few weeks back. Let me have that microphone. You let me do the talking around here. We'll call this Slaughter's Corner. A few weeks ago, you were out here saying that Bob Backlund did some great form of a miracle called a Harvard step-up test. Well, I say you're a liar. I say you're blind, and I happen to know that Bob Backlund, every time there was a match in the ring, he took a break, he sat down. I know that for a fact. I know that. And there's no man in this country right now except me that can do that Harvard step-up test. In fact, I hold the record in the Marine Corps down on Paris Island. I have 3,601 step-ups. Now, Bob Blackland claims to have 3,600. Well, that's with time out. That's not with 60 pounds on your back. That's not with an M16 in your hands. That's not climbing up in sand. I'm saying you're a liar. I'm saying you're a liar, Bob Backlund, Arnold Scolan, and I'm saying all you maggots, I challenge you, Bob Backlund, to go out, not in Rogers' Corner to do it again so you can get a break. Let me see you do 3,602 step-ups right in front of me and millions of people in this audience. You may have this one. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say one thing. I seen Bob Backlund do the stress test. I know he can do it and I don't lie. But with that, we'll go back to ringside wrestling. Thank you. The part about Buddy Rogers throwing drunken bums out of casinos in Atlantic City was a shoot, Steve. Yeah, yeah. I I, I remember uh, he got some kind of a deal with uh, was it Bally's or one of those? Bally's. Yep. Yeah, and Buddy Rogers, even this late in his life, uh, after all the physical uh, maladies he's had, Buddy was not a guy to be messed with. It's interesting that uh, despite they had so much heat with each other, that uh, both uh, Buddy and Bruno had uh, different uh, promotional relationships with Bally's. You know, Bruno did that commercial, yeah. and uh, but they uh, they coexisted for one way or another, I guess. Uh, you got you got to do what you got to do. I was at a convention when they kind of shook hands and made nice back in, I want to say, 90 or 91. Anyway, Bob Backlund, a couple of weeks earlier, had been out doing the Harvard step test for the entire hour of wrestling, just, you know, going up the stairs, up the ring stairs, down the ring stairs. And while even at the time I knew, that, hey, that's pretty impressive, you know, going up and down stairs for an hour it's not entertaining. And that, you know, just kind of sums up the 1983 version of Bob Backlund precisely. 
I guess though that they were just you know saying, hey, let's let's show how uh, athletic Bob is. Let's show him doing this uh, really difficult thing that he's doing to show his stamina and prove that wrestling is real. And uh, and then of course, so let's lead it up to where he'll do it, and then Slaughter beats the hell out of him. So uh, it was a good setup to a really good angle. Well, speaking of which, let's let's see what happens uh, later that week, or excuse me, the next week, uh, when Bob Backlund and Sar- well, when Bob Backlund attempts to do the Harvard step test again. Right now, and you can bet he's going to put the bad mouth on him to do anything to distract Bob Backlund and break his record. Bob Backlund continuing to do the step up test. Wait a minute, Sergeant Slaughter's over there with him now. Arnold Scullin's coming around. He has no business of being in there. Look at that. Scullin! Down to the concrete! Bob Backlund going after Sergeant Slaughter! Oh, that's terrible. Just aggravated Bobby was really doing it. See? Bob Backlund's... Oh, 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 no. Oh, what? Look at that. He's whipping him. Look at that. He's whipping him. Referee flies outside. Look at that. Sergeant Slaughter is whipping Bob Backlund with that riding crop. Oh, no. Look at the mark on Bob's body. Oh. Look at the mark on his back. Marks everywhere. Sergeant Slaughter whipping Bob Backlund with that riding crop. You gotta remember, Bob's gotta be tired after doing this for 40, 45 minutes. Oh my goodness! Slaughter! How long is that gonna last? Rip Backlund! To the rope! Oh my! In the ring, coming in to help out, and Sergeant Slaughter takes off! Did you see that? Look at him! Backlund is marked all over! Backlund is marked all over! There's no match here. We'll be back. Look at Backlund. He's just whipped wow. with that mark all over him. He's Look bleeding. His back is bleeding. He's bleeding up. Backlund is furious. We'll be back. Uh, we'll try to maintain some order. We'll be back, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, he's got to be upset. I can't. Bob. Bob, I've never, I've never seen this ever happen to anybody. People, there's only one man. On God's given earth. That's going to get away with doing that to me. And he's at home in Princeton, Minnesota. And I love him. And he could get away with that. Oh, you got Mark. He's the only one that can do that to me. Sergeant Slaughter is going to be coming at you in Madison Square Garden. He's going to be coming after you this Monday night, Bob Backlund. Slaughter, you won the first round. You tried to demoralize me like those people in your camp, in boot camp. Being in that ring isn't boot camp anymore. I may be just a private. I may be just a boy. I may just be a maggot too. 
But God, I'm going to fight for what I believe in, and I don't believe in you in professional wrestling and in Madison Square Garden. Okay, a couple of things. Number one, I know I'm the only one who could see this, but Arnold Skoland is wearing this bizarre pink cardigan. (laughs) I mean, you can't blame Slaughter for attacking the guy. You should see this. You know, from reading the Backland book again, uh, uh, it seems like Bob was the one that came up with this angle. And he told Slaughter uh, before they did the angle, uh, really let me have it, really lay him in there. And and Slaughter apparently is a nice guy. He really didn't want to do it. But he did uh, really, you know, welt him up with the the riding crop. And uh, it was definitely, I mean, looking back on the Backland era as a whole, this is one of the most memorable angles they ever did. Steve, I know, again, you're just getting the audio. I have the audio and video. Those welts popped right up on Backland. I mean, he Slaughter must have let him have it because as Bob is doing the interview, I mean, blood is pouring off of him from that riding crop. So I want to give Bob credit. I mean, you know, that looked painful. I kind of wonder um, how uh, Vince and his father, <laughs> uh, whether they really appreciated that or they paid Bob extra or, uh, I mean, usually the angles that they came up with weren't really, you know, gruesome or bloody or kind of hardcore, no. but th- this, this one really just seemed kind of uh, demented in some weird way. This, this was definitely a hardcore angle. Steve, remind me in the future, if I'm, I'm sending audio to Lou, I'm, he's also getting the video, please remind me to send it to you too, because I think you would have enjoyed seeing this. Sure. I mean, B- Backlund was, I mean, he was a mess. It was really was a hardcore angle. And I mean, the whole Harvard step testing, look, I know it's difficult, but here's what I was saying in 1983, and it's really true, Okay. Anyone can do that. Can they do it today? No. But if you are determined enough and able-bodied where you know you want to be able to go up step, do nothing but run up steps or up and down steps for an hour, you can do it. If you want to impress me, dunk a basketball. Right, right. Yeah, but the, the the audience back then was a lot more pliable, and they were a lot more uh, accepting of whatever they were told. Uh, they weren't too discriminating. Oh, it's certainly much more so than my friends and I as we watched it. We were like, come on, a guy's walking up and down stairs, man. Do something that'll impress me. Okay. Madison Square Garden, April 25th, 1983. These are the big shows. You know, obviously, every, everything focused around Madison Square Garden back in the day. Ivan Koloff gets his title shot against Bob Backlund. This actually was added about a year ago to Peacock. So if anyone wants to watch that, it's there for you. Uh, with the cross-faced chicken wing, it was a good match, Steve. It was a really, it was really kind of a long match. I think it went about twenty-eight minutes, and uh, you know, I I was kind of drifting off it during the middle of it. But I will tell you this: uh, Backlund got a huge ovation when he came out, and when he finally won the match at the end, uh, he got this huge ovation. And uh, again, I was thinking back to our uh, you know end of year wrap up of '83 that we did a few uh, weeks ago, and and I, I I was starting to wonder like maybe I shouldn't have been so harsh on Backlund because he's getting a huge reaction here but you know he did have some other stretches of time in in 83 where he was really the pit so it kind of balanced out i guess 
It, it really it was the ultimate balancing out uh, during that interview he did because you know he's got the guts to take that kind of punishment from Slaughter, but then he does that interview and he's doing 1994-1995 Bob Backlund with the the fist clenched and looking at the camera and showing you know these guys fists up to his face you know just like oh my god I don't want to see this guy anymore <laughs> that's where I was in 1983 oh no it it, may, it makes perfect sense uh, another. Another match on that uh, garden show, uh, the the Strongbows went against the Samoans, and they actually uh, had had it. You know, considering it, <laughs> I didn't really care for either team that much, they had a, a competitive match, and uh, you know, they actually got a decent reaction from the crowd. I, I saw um, another match with these two teams at the Spectrum, and it seemed like the, the fans were just asleep; they couldn't get into the match at all. No, the the Strongbows by this point were, I mean, they were finished as a tag team. The, the, the WWF wasn't quite finished with them, but they, you know, their best days were long over. So, yeah, this was this was a pretty good show, at least on paper. Uh, you had Rocky Johnson uh, versus Morocco. You had Jimmy Snooker versus superstar Billy Graham, who, I mean, he's not very good, but he's still a, a big name. So, I mean, I, it doesn't say what the what the crowd was, but, I mean, you have to think this was a sellout. Yeah, I, I would imagine it's a sellout, and probably the felt forum was pretty loaded too. Yeah. So okay, so that was a Monday night, uh, Saturday night, Philadelphia Spectrum. The main event is Bob Backlund versus Iron Mike Sharp. So I finally get my Iron Mike Sharp Bob Backlund match. It's just way down in Philadelphia. <laughs> and and I, I did see the match, and it was okay. I mean, there there were you know, as far as the storytelling, it was like an even evenly paced uh, match where you know one not one guy was really beating the other that much, but you know, Backlund uh, got him in a good roll up uh, you know cradle to win the match, and uh, it, but the fans it, you could just see that they weren't really surprised that Backlund won. It was just to be expected, I guess. No, I mean, look, we all went to the wrestling shows, you know, kind of knowing that, you know, really nothing outside of the spectrum that we were in was going to happen. Like nothing was going to impact anything. N nothing that happened at the Boston Garden was going to be like a title change mm -hmm. or whatever. It was just going to be whatever led up to the next show or whatever wrapped up whatever feud was going on in Boston. We just accepted it. Yeah. And that's it for this week. Tune in next week to hear John and Steve run down the rest of the spring of 1983 in the World Wrestling Federation. Stick to Wrestling with John McAdam, and sometimes Steve Generelli, is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I'm your producer, Lou Kippelman, and this concludes our podcast day.